0: Your Excellencies, dear friends and colleagues, my name is Henrik Urdal and I'm the Director of the Peace Research Institute Oslo-PRIO and it's my great pleasure to welcome you um, to PRIO and to this roundtable discussion marking the one year anniversary of Russia's war on Ukraine. It appears now, one year after the invasion, that the direct and indirect effects of the war may last for years and permeate across the world. The focus of today's discussion is the geopolitical impacts of the war with a special emphasis on the consequences for Europe, the Middle East, and Sahel. We are privileged to have at our disposal uh, here today four exceptionally competent PRIO researchers who will all offer uh, perspectives on the geopolitical impacts of the war from different perspectives. First, all the way to your left, Pavel Bayev. Uh, Pavel is a research professor at Prio and has for more than three decades studied uh, Russian foreign security security policy, and has over the last year uh, became a much-used commentator on the war, both in Norwegian media and in international media outlets. Then, uh, next to Pavel, we have Pinar Tank. Uh, Pinar is a senior researcher at Prio, and uh, a key figure in the Prio Middle East Center, and also an expert on Turkish foreign and security policy, as well as on the broader regional security issues in the Middle East. Next to we have Marie Sanles. Marie is a doctoral researcher here at Prio. Uh, She is writing her doctoral dissertation on the timely, timely topic of military cooperation between the G5 Sahel Joint Force and external military actors in the Sahel. And last uh, but not least, we have Nicholas Marsh, a senior researcher at Prio. Nick is an expert on global arms exports and has also led a large recent Prio project uh, for the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs on the global consequences of the war in Ukraine. And that is a project that also includes all of the other panelists as well as uh, uh, additional researchers here at Prio. Um, I should also say that we have a number of policy briefs, we have a number of blog posts coming out of this project and out of other engagements on Ukraine that uh, have uh, been published over the past year, uh, and I encourage you all to check those um, um, policy briefs and and blog posts uh, out on the Prio web if you uh, have an interest. I would like to start uh, go straight to you uh, pavel uh, and uh, and uh, we'll do this as uh, in a form of, uh, of posing uh, questions and uh, and let also the the other panelists uh, intervene uh, and as I said we will get back to to questions from the audience uh, towards the end um and I'll start with <coughs> um, sort of a key question now on on the uh, developments of the war uh, on uh, what putin can do to build up both domestic and international resources needed for uh, a long war. What is your perspectives on that?
1: Yes, I have been, thank you, Henrik. It's good to be part of this discussion. I've been talking and writing and commenting on this war for, uh, for a year and four days now. And one thing I can tell you is it's always changing. It is always evolving uh, in sometimes un- unpredictable ways. And even now when the battlefields appear to be kind of frozen and stable, political battles uh, g- are going very high intensity. And uh, every war, in essence, is, a, is an act of policy. So political battles are no less important than the developments in the trenches. What we see more recently in... Uh, coming from Moscow in Putin's discourse uh, is a very visible change, much less is talk about victory, much more about the kind of grim determination which is needed for a long and protracted conflict. That's what Putin is aiming at, uh, kind of readying the country for uh, many and long and protracted challenges ahead. So when we talk about the prospect of a long war, we need to be aware, it's very much fits with this discourse now developed in Moscow. Uh, Certainly long war is a very particular uh, challenge which essentially is about uh, competition of two economic uh, systems and Russian economy is not not in a great shape. Putin's only hope in sustaining the long war effort is with increasing the uh, support, first of all from China but generally from kind of other international, uh, every international source he he can find. Uh, And one voice which argues very strongly against the long war perspective comes from Kiev, from Vladimir Zelensky. He said, this is a decisive year. We can bring this war to an end. And I think this voice, uh, yes, certainly he has very particular uh, take on this development, Ukraine, uh, will suffer the most from the long war. Uh, but I think this perspective deserves more attention uh, than the, uh, acceptance of the long war prospect.
0: One of the things that we <coughs> also wanted to bring up in this discussion, uh, Pavel, is the um, the responses uh, to the war in the global south uh, and, uh, and specifically what has been uh, perhaps a... Um, more what, what we uh, what we have have uh, talked about uh, as as being sort of more of an indifferent position among many global South uh, countries, um, is this a calculated choice? What is the uh, what is the impact of uh, of this reaction from uh, at least many and and several relatively influential global South countries?
1: Yes, I think it is an important question, and it. Uh, uh, gained uh, a lot of attention at the recent Munich Security Conference, where it was kind of uh, discovered that the West is growing more united, more consolidated, g- with greater solidarity, but more divided from the global south. Uh, the vote in the UN General Assembly last week doesn't quite support that. Still, a, a very strong majority for the resolution suggested by Ukraine. Uh, which wouldn't have been kind of uh, adopted without the voices from the Global South. But there is a point there, that indeed for many actors in the Global South, uh, distancing from the war appears to be kind of the uh, strategy of choice. And uh, again, from the Munich Security Conference, and very often you hear it's a communication problem. The West needs to explain the whole situation more to the actors in the Global South and I don't think it is the case. It's not at all a problem of communication. It is a situation where in the West, there is a unique coming together of uh, policy based on values and policy based on interests. They really come together very, uh, very naturally and that's why the West is so, so able to forge this unity and this solidarity. It's not the case at all in the global South. And not just because many actors there don't share Western values. Saudi Arabia comes first to mind probably, but then there are always Venezuelans and whatnot. Uh, but also because the interests are very different. Uh, it's not just a question of values. It's also a question of calculating what's in the uh, interest of these actors. And many of these interests are not at all about uh, strong, uh, united, consolidated West uh, defeating uh, Russia, whatever sins of aggression it has committed. Uh, because for you know, many uh, actors in the West, kind of balancing between uh, various, various poles is a kind of natural uh, political course. India has been doing that since the times of Jawaharlal Nehru. Uh, and suddenly finding it cannot do it anymore because Russia is defeated is not very comfortable. Uh, Erdogan is kind of, uh, excels at this game. Pinar will tell you more about that. Uh, you know, many other actors find that situation uh, much more beneficial to their interest than the fact that the uh, West uh, is now more united and more able to put forward this position. There are certainly all, also calculations that the more aid, the more support goes to Ukraine, the less is left for supporting many courses in the global South. And if this is a plain arithmetics, you uh, cannot argue, uh, argue with that. But my point is that uh, dis- trying to dissuade the global south from that position is pretty f- uh, futile. The, what will begin of the uh, moment when the uh, calculus of interest change is when uh, Russia is defeated, when Ukraine is triumphant. You immediately will see how all these kind of actors who are uh, preferring to sit on the fence come with a different position and saying we always were in favor of uh, defeating the, the aggressor. And again, it is not a hypocrisy. It is a rational political choice. It's, you know, supporting the loser is never a good policy. Uh, Bandwagoning with a winning coalition, yeah, it is absolutely uh, beneficial, course. So that is, I think, the only way uh, of changing the attitudes on the global south.
2: Yeah, I I think uh, one thing which uh, a policy brief which Marie um, produced uh, in the summer uh, sort of concluded was that a large part of the global south wants to remain non-aligned. It doesn't want to have to choose. Um, And uh, a key dilemma both for the US, Norway, uh, leading European countries is what to do about uh, what they perceive as a problem in that the sanctions which be have been enacted against russia are being uh, diverted via products being sent into the global south and then up into russia um so there's now pressure on uh turkey among others other other countries um to step in line to stop um you know the, this trade going to russia um and that's going to make uh, you know, s- a lot of governments have to choose um, and make a decision that they don't really want to make. Uh, are we going to step in line with the sanctions and, you know, perhaps lose money, or are we going to be seen to be um, openly, um, hel- you
0: know, assisting Russia?
2: Uh, import products.
0: This is also a nice uh, segue uh, to uh, to you, Pinar, um, because one of the w- one of the questions we have in in the context of this discussion is the. The issue of how the war has shifted uh, traditional alliances in the Middle East. What can you say about that?
3: Yeah, I'd like to.
0: um,
3: uh, Can you hear me? Yeah, I'd like to uh, just make a few comments as well. uh, Like you say, I said to 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 what Pavel said because you know in the West this is seen as an existential war. In the Middle East, it's a faraway war that's being fought, and and the, the, uh, you know, and it's important to the West. They recognize that, but it doesn't have the same weight, obviously, in the global South. And also, the idea of having a war based on values. And, and trying to, in a way, um, uh, sort of uh, have that kind of narrative toward the gro- global South, who has seen what has happened in the global South with those values and the kind of transactional interests with the pullout from Afghanistan, with, the, with leaving the Kurds alone in 2019. So this, this idea that, that, that there is a West with that's operating, w- uh, that this war is being run on a kind of Western idea of values, it kind of is weak from a global South perspective. And I completely agree with you that a lot of what the Global South I- is doing now is, is much more uh, based on, on interests uh, and on these kind of transactional relationships. Um, and I think this actually goes back to um, the Ukraine war uh, perhaps highlights this, but if we look back until 2009 with the, the U.S. Uh, decision o- to diminish its its role in the Middle East and this idea by Barack Obama of a lighter footprint, and that was followed by in 2011 with the with the with the Arab uprisings and the and the U.S. support for the people rather than the governments that that they had supported authoritarian regimes. The failure of that, the reentrenchment of these governments. So this is a kind of a process that now has led us to this moment where uh, many of the the the. Uh, the Countries, or the states in the Middle East, uh, ruled by authoritarian leaders are are making these kinds of cost-benefit analysis in this war. Um, and what's also interesting is that this sort of pull out from the Middle East has g- uh, created a kind of vacuum where f- many of these countries, uh, especially the key ones, are trying to establish themselves as regional powers through a kind of middle powers uh, dynamic, if we can talk about that. And examples of this include, for example, the unwillingness of Saudi Arabia to concede to Biden's wishes uh, and And uh, in the saudi led OPEC plus cartel to increase oil production ahead of u s elections, this was a real slap in the face for a relationship that that, that had uh, for, for, for the u s who had seen Saudi Arabia as, as, as one of its uh, strongest allies and As you mentioned, in my area of interest, of course, is Turkey who is playing both sides and you know has been playing them rather well, saying that okay we will w- because of our relationship to putin we c- we secured the grain deal. Uh, we, um, uh, but at the same time, we we oppose the w- we oppose the war. We sell uh, our our drones to to um, to Ukraine, and then of course, what Turkey has managed to do in terms of stopping the process for NATO expansion to Finland and Sweden. So, th- and now overtures to the Assad regime, which is against again going against the sort of Western policy towards the, the Syrian regime. I think that this illustrates a kind of strategic autonomy that more and more countries in the, in the Middle East are wanting to adopt. Um, and I think this was said really well by the UA- UAE presidential advisor um, in, uh, in April of tw- 20, uh, 2022, uh, already just one uh, two months after the war, where he said that um, the war is proving that the international order is no longer unipolar. And the UAE joined India and China in abstaining from a U.S.-backed UN Security Council condemning Russia's war. Um, what's interesting also is that we are talking here about the state level, but there was a there at the level of the public, you might get a completely different picture. And just last week, um, uh, actually over the weekend, Al Monitor had a survey, uh, surveying four countries in the Middle East: uh, Turkey, Yemen. Iraq, and I think it was Tunisia, where they asked uh, questions about the war. And most people in these countries uh, don't blame the US for the war. They blame Russia very directly, and certainly not Ukraine. So I think there's a different narrative perhaps happening at the level of the population as compared to uh, at the level of the state.
0: Then um, w- what we've discussed also in the context of the of the Middle East, and, and this is interesting also with the, with the popular perceptions and the uh, and perhaps the the, uh, the perceptions of the of those uh, of, uh, sort of leading the the regimes here, because um, we've talked about the uh, the the strongmanship of uh, of Putin's uh, sort of leadership of of Russia, and and this has resonated uh, to some extent uh, in the Middle East. What can you say about sort of the uh, the cultural and ideological aspects of uh, Putin's leadership and, and how they're attractive to Middle Eastern leaders.
3: I have to say that I, I expressly asked for this question <laughs> to be put here <laughs> because I think it's something that we don't focus on enough, and this is the the, the sort of the the. Uh, personality, the, the, the very personally led uh, regime, uh, I- regimes in the Middle East and uh, this, this personalized authoritarian leadership of Putin actually resonates very well with these kinds of regimes who are often very conservative and quite authoritarian and where foreign policy is seen as a projection of their own identity. Uh, and this identity is often seen through the lens of masculinity uh, and it is often also against liberal values. And Putin has himself talked about this war as a cultural ideological campaign against the West. And most recently in his speech to the Federal Assembly in which he frames the war as a spiritual campaign and laments the, quote, destruction of the family of cultural and national identity and also laments the, the West's adoption of same-sex marriage. And uh, it sounds kind of, uh, it, 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 it doesn't sound serious, but I think it's something we need to take seriously because this is a normative war as well. And I think we need to be aware of that, especially in a country like Norma- uh, like Norway, where, where gender is so important in foreign policy. And I don't think we're doing enough analysis of the role of masculinity in this war.
0: Can I can I post this back to you uh, as well, Pavel, on on Putin's uh, leadership style and and uh, because there there have been speculations about the uh, the extent to which uh, Putin is being increasingly also isolated and, and not uh, not being um, uh, so not being uh, I- in his uh, in his uh, orientation, uh, not building on on uh, on very broad uh, numbers of. of um, uh, advisors, and, and uh, whether this is a development that you uh, think is is w- whether this is the case, and, and whether this is going to be increasingly uh, a, a case with Russian leadership going forward during the war. Uh,
1: it is, you know, the system of decision making in the Kremlin is so intransparent, is so mysterious in some way that it's really hard to make an, an informed judgment. But well, it is clear a decision to start the war uh, was taken by a very small group of people so that the majority of the military even were not informed at all uh, that they are really going into the war and it came as a surprise to them. And I think this trend continues. Putin really uh, thinks in terms of of special operation very much uh, um, special um, forces uh, mentality not really as a war leader who needs to mobilize the the elites, not not to mention the the population. And I think also his attempts to uh, connect with other autocrats. I don't see them as very successful. Some of the discourse he employs maybe resonates, but basically dictators of the world cannot come together. It's each, each, each bastard for himself, sorry about, uh, about the word. Much the same thing as proletarians of the world can never come together, despite whatever, what was written in the Communist uh, Manifesto. But the democracies can. And we see kind of uh, more and more, uh, more proof of that. And so I think uh, whatever uh, tricks Putin tries to play with staging the Africa summit uh, later this year, of trying to kind of, uh, exploit the anti-Western feelings whenever he can find them in leftist Latin America or in corrupt South Africa, uh, it still doesn't really help. And the, the vote in the United Nations, I think, is the, the best evidence of that.
0: We'll move on to uh, to uh, sort of another aspect of the of the war in Ukraine, um, Marie, um, because the one of the um, one of the aspects of uh, of the Russian war that has uh, gotten quite a bit of attention in uh, in Ukraine is uh, is the role of the Wagner Group, which is now active in especially in uh, in the areas around Bakhmut, uh, but uh, it's also a global enterprise and, and one that has very much uh, been influential in the Sahel uh, region. So uh, could you s- what can you say about the uh, deployment of the Wagner Group uh, in Mali, which you have studied, and uh, how that has impacted uh, more broadly in the Sahel region?
4: Yeah, so um, for those of you who don't know, Wagner Group is this um, private security company, a Russian private security company, and like you said, it's been deployed in Ukraine now recently and gained a lot of media attention from that, but it has previously also engaged in several conflict settings like um, Libya, in Syria, uh, in Sudan, uh, and other places. And now, uh, last year, it also deployed in Mali. And Mali is a long-term European security partner. It has had a lot of Uh, European uh, training missions, military missions in Mali and in the neighbouring region. France, as the previous colonial power, has been heavily present with a counter-terrorism operation going for almost a decade, in both Mali and in the region. Um, But then uh, last year, or I guess the end of 2021, we started hearing rumours about a potential agreement between Mali and the Wagner Group. And the beginning of last year, it got confirmed that Wagner Group had deployed in Mali. Um, the guesstimate is a thousand mercenaries. Um, and as a result of Wagner Group's deployment, um, there was a lot of quarrelling between uh, the Malian authorities and European authorities, especially French authorities. And the deployment of Wagner Group ultimately led to the French counterterrorism operation Barkhane withdrawing from Mali. Uh, almost at the same time as Wagner Group deployed. Uh, And Wagner Group's deployment also had um, restricting consequences for other European actors involved, as well as the UN mission operating in Mali, both in terms of political will of of the country, but also geographically where they were actually able able to operate. And since Wagner Group's deployment we've seen, uh, we see as the year passed last year that Mali moved further and further away from European partnership and further towards Russian partnerships or at least Wagner Group uh, partnerships. And and Mali also decided to leave a regional military coalition, the G5 Sahel Joint Force, which I've been writing about, um, partly because of the strong involvement from France. So there's been a clear, like, distancing from France and move towards Russia. And although this has been kind of in military terms, it also has serious political complication. I think it's fair to say that we've seen a clear geopolitical shift for Mali. And I think it's also fair to say that this has been some of the intention around the deployment of Wagner Group in Mali. Um, Although Wagner Group is a private security company, it is widely accepted that um, it has strong links to and often acts on behalf of Russian foreign policy. Um, so in this sense, at least uh, the way we see Wagner Group in Mali, I think it's fair to say it's a tool of p- Russian foreign policy. Um, before Wagner Group deployed, it usually engages a lot in disinformation campaigns in order to like create a space for itself, and this is something that we saw in Mali several years prior to Wagner Group's um, deployment. So it was a way for Wagner Group to kind of test the waters for a deployment, but also kind of creating that space for deployment and creating, um, I guess, a positive momentum for uh, Russia um, and Russian politics. Um, And for Mali's sake, this kind of geopolitical shift has been quite clear as the the picture here showed earlier. Mali is one of the states that has almost consistently voted with Russia or at least not with um, the, the West. In, in any UN resolutions uh, following Russia's in invasion in, in Ukraine. Uh, and I think that the deployment of Wagner Group in Mali, it's, it has symbolic value in the region. Um, because it, it, It's symbolic because it was so clear that Mali broke ties with its former colonial power. And this has also had, um, it's prompted further regional uh, responses, I think it's fair to say. Uh, beginning of last year, as Wagner Group deployed in Mali, there was a coup in Burkina Faso, the neighboring state, um, followed by multiple protests, popular protests, uh, that called for Burkina Faso to follow Mali's footstep, to move from France and, and towards uh, uh, Russia or the deployment of Wagner Group. Uh, nothing happened in the beginning of the year, not really. And then in September, again, you had a coup within a coup in Burkina Faso and following that you ended up with a military leader who was vocally very pro-Russia. Uh, and what's happened now over the last month is that um, the, the military leadership in Burkina Faso has ordered the French forces to leave. Uh, they left about a week ago, the final troops, um, the French ambassador was withdrawn. Burkina Faso. So Burkina Faso is very clearly following now Mali's footstep and they are vocal that they want Wagner Group to deploy. Whether Wagner Group has the capacity to do that now because of the, the conflict in Ukraine is a, is another question. But there is a clear tendency of, of, of a political will to move towards Russia. And, and I think what the, the impact that Wagner Group has on the Sahel region is that it is positioning itself as a an alternative partner, and especially a, an alternative partner to France, which, which I think is a fairly—I'm um, not going to say an easy sell, but it is, uh, it is the sell to go for uh, if you want uh, a, a geopolitical shift in the Sahel.
0: And I- in the extension of this, uh, Magia, what can you say about the uh, th- uh, the factors that are facilitating uh, the um, the role of the of the Wagner Group in the region?
4: Yeah, so just slight backstory for those of you who don't know. The Sahel region has, over the past decade, experienced uh, a strong intensification of insecurity. So you have uh, violent attacks by groups associated with Al-Qaeda, with the Islamic State, you have drug trafficking, you have militias, you have violence against civilians from multiple actors, including security forces of the state. And I think that this intensification of violence at the same time as you've had such a strong involvement from Western actors like France, like the EU, like the UN, it has um there's been a growing dissatisfaction with the involvement of Western actors because they are there, they invest a lot of money, they are the military is there, but still the security situation gets worse and worse. Um so you have had this growing dissatisfaction with external actors, which has um Kind of manifested in these anti-French sentiments because of France's strong role in the region, um, and these anti-French sentiments—they've been growing not only in Mali but but uh, in Burkina Faso, in Niger, in Chad. You've had over over the past years, you've had multiple protests that are anti-French in 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 uh, in in the, in the sense. Um, but since Mali's deployment of Wagen Group, these protests have become even larger and, and louder, I think is fair to say. Uh, and the dissatisfaction is with the fact that the security situation is getting worse. It's about France's strong involvement also in political matters in the region and most matters in the region. Uh, the Spreading of conspiracy theories of so France um, aiding the insurgencies. Uh, and this kind of dissatisfaction is of course something that Wagner Group has monopolized to the extent that they've been uh, they've been able to do that. Uh, but I also want to point out that especially in Mali and Burkina Faso, you've had military coups, sev- several of them in the past few years. And this new military leadership has been driving quite a hard line towards France, more so than the predecessors, because the predecessors has benefited more from France's uh, goodwill or legitimacy, I guess. Um, and so kind of what we see, what we have seen especially in Mali but I think also more broadly in the region is that both political elites and populations feed this anti-French sentiment. Um, and I think, I mean this of course made it easier for Wagner Group to to exploit these sentiments by providing an alternative security partner but I, I wouldn't say that these states are only like are prone the influence, I think it's more that they've been seeking it out. Uh, they, they, um, there, there has been a very welcoming dynamic for a new security provider. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that uh, Mali's and Burkina Faso's kind of move away from France is very much a result of their own agency, their own agency to choose which external partners that they want to work with. Um, and going forward, some people speak of a potential domino effect in in the whole region. Um, I don't know if domino effect is the right word to use, because that kind of implies that the states are falling. I wouldn't say that they're falling, I would say that they are actively seeking out alternatives. Um, so whether th- it will happen for more states, I'm not sure, but for now it looks like Burkina Faso is definitely following following Mali. Mm.
0: Pavel, I, I would also like to ask you about the uh, ab- about the Wagner Group because a key question here is is whether uh, they're sort of overextending their reach uh, with with their capacity now being, of course, uh, stretched by the fact that they're they're so involved in Ukraine. Is there a risk that uh, that uh, you know they will uh, be unable uh, to uh, to continue uh, having such a, a broad engagement uh, both in Ukraine
1: and uh, and in the Sahel? I think the dynamics in Sahel uh, is rather out of sync with the dynamics in the Ukraine war. Again, it's it's a question of distance. It's a question also that um, their perceptions of what Wagner is is still based on the experiences from Central uh, African Republic and Mali, not on the most recent developments in Ukraine, which they probably cannot observe. But what is happening in Ukraine with the Wagner group uh, is is definitely uh, a game changer for that particular organization because it is now very much uh, not only involved in regular fighting around bakhmut but also labeled as international criminal organization uh, which with which is rather difficult will be to uh, keep uh, keep connections And it's also very probably on the path of self-destruction because of its conflict with the Russian military, because of the way it has been recruiting from the essentially prison population. You start recruiting from there, it means you cannot recruit from anywhere else because nobody would want really to join um, this organization. So I think that Evgeny Prigozhin, who is kind of the uh, master of this uh, game, is very much on uh, the way to deep trouble Uh, in his new uh, shining headquarters in St. Petersburg. Some of the tall windows up there might suddenly open, and uh, it happened uh, several times before in the war. Uh, So I think that the problem with the very specific Wagner Group may kind of solve itself uh, in the mid-green around Bakhmut. Pinar?
3: I, just one comment to what uh, Maria is saying. I think what's really interesting is if we compare the Middle East and Africa, uh, there is less, if, and correct me if I'm r- wrong on this, Pavel, but my my impression is that the Middle East is geostrategically much less important for Russia now. It's important in terms of economy and the ability to sell, sell arms, but Africa is really where the geostrategic interest is, is at the moment, and not least because of China.
1: Yeah, I think it is surprising that uh, Russia and China cannot really cooperate uh, properly in Africa because China doesn't want to have anything to do with the Wagner Group, uh, probably. But the shift in Russian attention from the Middle East towards Africa, uh, I think, is interesting. uh, Not least because in the Middle East, with the rise of uh, local actors, there is much less space for uh, Russia to, um, to operate. Uh, while in Africa it feels there are vulnerabilities created by the kind of French weaknesses and the kind of some kind of um, local g- conflict open to being uh, manipulated much more than in the Middle East, where uh, the resource base of Russian foreign policy is limited. And in Africa, uh, investing much less, you can score something uh, more, at least in the, uh, in the public space, um, hardly on the uh, real battlefields.
0: We'll move now to uh, to uh, Nick and to uh, to the question, Nick, about uh, military support uh, for Ukraine. Uh, last time I, I looked at the list, there were 35 different countries who had been supplying um, weaponry uh, to Ukraine, and other 10 uh, who have been contributing in, in other ways. Uh, so there is a large international coalition. Uh, large amounts of weaponry that has entered Ukraine uh, the uh, recently now the first german produced tanks uh, have arrived is there so Is there are, are you know what are the limits to uh, military support for ukraine will it continue indefinitely
2: um i mean i, I don't think it can continue indefinitely at the level uh, at which it's bef- been provided um uh, I mean firstly, you can just look at it in terms of industrial production i mean as Pavel was saying earlier we 're back into the calculus we haven't really been thinking about uh since the second world war in in terms of wars being won and lost and uh by your monthly production of munitions, weapons, and whoever produces most uh you know has the advantage um, and uh, i I think uh a, a w- one feature is um that for the past thirty years uh the, the basic assumption in north america western europe is that well we're not going to fight against a country like russia um it, you know that the the age of you know war active in high intensity war between great powers is is over um and that you know war for the last 30 years has either been by the west against States which are enormously weaker, um, you know, the invasion of Iraq being an example or a counterinsurgency Um, And so the both the militaries and the sort of defense industries uh, Sorry, uh, the militaries the defense industries um, uh, In North America Western Europe uh, have been organized uh, around the you know that basis that you wanted a small number of high-tech weapons and not the sort of massive production we saw um, previously um so even uh after uh when was it i 1st i've been tracking the f- the first article i saw raising this was in march um last year you know raising the question are we going to run out of anti-tank missiles before russia runs out of tanks um uh and uh, i mean that was kind of pro- pro- provocative title but certainly the 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 munitions are being used up faster than they're being produced um, stocks are running down um, You're looking at the contracts being let for sort of replacement, or say, uh, you know, anti-tank weapons um, Not all of the ones are being replaced and it's going to take until 20 f- 2025 26 for the contracts to, to actually be finished um, so certainly the it's not going to be possible for the West itself to carry on supporting Ukraine um, at the level that it has for, for years. Um, uh, obviously, as Pavel mentioned, Russia has its own problems with production. So, you know, maybe we're we're in a race to see who runs out of weapons first. Um, um, but, you know, as Pavel mentioned, if Russia does get support from China in terms of uh, munitions, then it's... Uh, Going to be very difficult um, to sustain Ukraine at, you know at an appropriate level uh, for years to come uh, I saw a report a news report uh, this was u s uh, r- rumors coming out of the u s government so i don't know if it's uh, confirmed um, that China was planning on supplying Russia with ammunition so again if, if uh, we're coming back to, uh, uh, I guess, a more, much wider question. Uh, a large part of the, you know, Western world's industrial production was outsourced to China over the last thirty years. Um, th- this may be coming back to being seen as a problem, and certainly the Biden administration has uh, be put a lot of effort into what's called, you know, onshoring production, bringing uh, production of critical industries back into the U.S. Uh, and I think we're going to see a lot of that happening with Europe as well. Um, the second way to look at the sort of sustain sustainment is to look at you know surveys, popular support. Um, uh, I mean, you know, Pino was saying uh, the war's seen as a sort of existential struggle um, in the West. I, I I wouldn't go that far. Um, I was looking at. Uh, recent Eurobarometer survey uh, of the whole of the EU, um, it was saying 65% of people in the EU agree with the EU providing military aid to Ukraine. So I mean, that's a clear majority, but it's not uh, not overwhelming. Um, You've got some countries, um, even overall, you know, including economic support. uh, There was Greece, Bulgaria, Cyprus, um, among those where there wasn't a majority. Um, So there, you know, there are some splits already um and it, you know it could be that those increase over time um uh, you know the populations of europe have so far i think shown a remarkable degree of uh, uh, acceptance of increased budgets going to the military um, uh, at a time when there's you know profound economic problems so i'm not Totally certain that that will continue and also there's you know governments such as Hungary, which have been uh, actively opposed um, to EU policy again in the US um, What we've seen uh, is that the Ukraine issue it started off being a bipartisan uh, issue a year ago Republicans Democrats pretty much united um, uh, And now it isn't Uh, there's a clear if you look at the surveys a clear party divide uh, So about 40% of people identifying themselves as Republicans in a recent Pew survey, you know, stated that too much aid is being provided to Ukraine. Um, uh, That number's increased dramatically over the last year. Um, So, you know, the support from the US isn't guaranteed, I think, Um, certainly in the long run, we've had, Ukraine's been very fortunate that the invasion happened when you had Biden as president. Um, you know, we can't guarantee he's going to continue to be president long term, um, and we can't guarantee that Democrat uh, politicians may, uh, you know, see which way the wind is going and you know not to be so enthusiastic this is a big problem because in terms of the aid the vast majority has come from the united states um, again europe europe's capacity to provide aid is is very limited um it's it's been very much a, a sort of a us solution for a european problem so far in terms of supporting
0: ukraine Pinar?
3: Yeah, and One other point I, I wanted to just bring up when we were talking about this uh, beefing up of defense budgets. I mean, the money has to come from somewhere. And one of the things that we, we wrote about last year was uh, to what extent this uh, impacts the global south and humanitarian aid, not least. And we saw only, I think it was yesterday, a few days ago, the pledging conference for Yemen fell short by $1 billion. So these are things that we also have to keep in the back of our minds, and especially in the Middle East, where many of these countries are... Uh, You know beset by by refugee streams. So this will have an impact on on, on, uh, aid, humanitarian aid to the global south as well if we continue with this race
0: You want to drill down a little bit more uh, Nick on on what uh, what the the potential uh, and and increasing tensions are between between the West and uh, and Ukraine Uh, What 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 should we be worried about?
2: Um, Yes, certainly the there have been, uh, I mean, uh, remarkably few tensions compared to to other conflicts, but certainly the, the relationship hasn't been entirely harmonious. I mean, uh, firstly, Ukraine has consistently and uh, very assertively called for weapons uh, and types of weapons which Western countries have been reluctant to provide it with. Um, the US, for example, uh, has not only not provided Ukraine with sort of long-range missiles, um, but has also um adapted what uh, the the launchers it's provided to make sure they can 't be fired so even if Ukraine was to get hold of them from elsewhere uh this is because the u s has stated um other governments have stated they 're worried if there's uh strikes against uh russia well uh, div- uh, territory uh within russia's twenty fourteen borders um Let's say if it strikes against those with U.S. supplied missiles, um, th- there's a fear about Russia's response to that and whether Russia would escalate um, You know, uh, with attacks against uh, NATO members, etc. Um, th- those concerns have also been raised with the supply of jet fighters, which so far hasn't happened, uh, although there's talk about that. Um, Uh, They were also raised of course with tanks and you know that concern uh, you know has has so far been mollified Um, So what one feature of the war so far has been sort of Western concerns about escalation which uh, haven't really happened so far Um, but uh, Just because it hasn't happened so far doesn't mean it can't happen in the future and that that's one tension um the other tension uh and it 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 includes what Pinar mentioned is that obviously for ukraine this is an existential fight uh, for its survival um for countries bordering russia ukraine um, you know again you know poland estonia etc see this as an existential fight uh but for other countries in the west um it's there are other problems um and Ukraine isn't going to be able to be the centre of their attention long term. Um, the US is concerned about China. Um, there's a lot of concern in the US uh, about whether there will be a war against China over Taiwan. Um, there are, uh, as Pina was mentioned, um, it's it's unclear how long you can have. Uh, Reduction in aid budgets because so much money is being put into military um, spending because that affects uh, The the West's uh, relationships with with the rest of the global South Um, and finally, I mean we Western countries have been quite uh, United in terms of stating that if there are to be peace talks, um, you know Ukraine needs to be in the in the driving seat Ukraine needs to make the decisions as to what deal it may or may not accept um but i think behind the scenes uh reading between the lines there uh, you, you do see comments for example by french president macron uh that you know ukraine's going to have to make a deal at some point um uh and y- you know the the implication there is that well we may you know expect ukraine to give up some territory in a peace deal um Partly, as I said, because the level of support is going to be very difficult to sustain in the long run, and that's going to be a big source of tension, um, uh, both within Western countries as well. Uh, you know, to what extent are we, is that acceptable or not?
0: Pablo, I, w- I wanted to uh, to pick up on one of uh, of Nick's point uh, points about uh, U.S. support and what may happen to because, as as we uh, as we discussed, the U.S. has been the single most important uh, supplier of weaponry. At the same time, we have the uh, U.S. presidential elections coming up in 2024, and even though the Republican leadership is still very much uh, supportive of Ukraine's case, as Nick said, we we see that there has been increasing um, reluctance on the part of the uh, of the Republican uh, supporters, the voter base, uh, on on the issue of Ukraine. With with a, with a now relatively large uh, share of uh, of Republican voters uh, being uh, skeptical about continued uh, support for weaponry. You have been involved with with Brookings and with other uh, US-based think tanks uh, on these issues over uh, over a long time. What's your reading of the uh, the US landscape uh, now?
1: Yes, landscape is changing and definitely the approaching elections uh, going to be uh, very, uh, very uncertain as they always are. But I think that issue of uh, help to Ukraine is one of the uh, weaknesses in the Republican Party. Uh, and it's, kind of, uh, it's very clear that the long tradition in this party of supporting Ukraine clashes with the uh, line drawn by President Trump who wants to do anything uh, to distance himself from the current administration. And that um, one of the weaknesses in the Republican platform, I think, increases generally the chances of another win for the, uh, for the Democrats. Uh, because the cause is still broadly supported by, uh, by the uh, American public opinion. If you start argue against that, yes, you connect with some groups, but they are a a minority constituency. So for the Republican Party, it's a big problem uh, how to deal with that. And I think the problem generally diminishes their chances of uh, regaining control uh, over the uh, US policy. But I think even going away from the electoral politics, I think many uh, decisions now being made in the United States about the uh, gearing up of the military production, ammunition production in particular, about investing in uh, industrial capacity for uh, sustaining the long war, replacing all the equipment which is spent in Ukraine, I think they are set to continue. These are decisions with longevity. You cannot cancel them uh, just like that. So in this regard, uh, the machinery of supporting uh, Ukraine, I think it was going to slow or, or, uh, or at the start. It is gearing up. It will continue to gear up. And the, um, uh, whatever the political campaigning we're going to see during uh, this year and the next, that dynamics, I think, is more important f- fundamentally. And I think the same goes for Europe, which is coming gradually to understanding that uh, it cannot rely fully on the United States uh, support for Ukraine. It m- more needs to be done, uh, both in terms of political unity in Europe and in terms of, kind of pr- uh, production of key weapon systems, ammunition ammunition in particular. I think we are going to see that um, trend becoming more, uh, more established. Whatever the political winds, hmm.
0: we have touched briefly on uh, on China's role, although that is not a major uh, focus of, of this discussion. I wanted to uh, to challenge you uh, on um, the uh, uh, the Chinese peace plan uh, that uh, that was announced uh, on Friday uh, on the uh, on the one year. Uh, anniversary of uh, of the invasion, um, with uh, a reception that was uh, both both uh, Russia and, and Ukraine uh, did welcome at least partly, uh, and and uh, on part of uh, of Ukraine somewhat reluctantly. At the same time, uh, it's clear that Ukraine wants to to try to engage try to engage China in a in a constructive manner at the same time as uh, as there is a possibility that as Nick said China is becoming involved uh, with with now the uh, at least the speculations uh, that they will be providing drones uh, to uh, to Ukraine and uh, and also training programs and um, and uh, production capacity so is there is there any w- you may be able to say something about this, Pavel, but uh, but also for the rest of the panel. Do you? And and in Turkey has already volunteer, volunteered volunteered uh, to be uh, a um, a, sort of a chief mediator in uh, in the conflict. Uh, do we see any way
1: forward uh, now with with some of these initiatives? It's not certainly a peace plan. These uh, ten principles that China put forward, but I think it's uh, deserving. Uh, not rejection as we have seen uh, in Washington instantly, uh, but um, it, I think it's deserving uh, greater work on it, so to say, and I think Zelensky is right to saying there are points in this plan we are can kind of fully support of starting from the point about an acceptability of nuclear threats, excellent point, uh, to the kind of very first point about territorial integrity, needs to be elaborated more uh, what uh, what China means in that. But it's something we can uh, certainly work with, and I think f- very unusual step for China, generally producing something uh, which uh, they, they call p- uh, peace plan. But it's much uh, wiser p- uh, politics to engage China with that uh, than to reject. Um, uh pushing the same way china closer into uh, supporting russia and so i think the uh, key point now is to prevent uh china uh, of from supplying russia with little uh, military aid and i think that plan could be instrumental towards this aid. Pinar, do you say
0: do you see a role for turkey maybe uh, you know together with with china sort of long term as a, as a way to
3: well, English. I think I think uh, uh, that would be a, a dream for Erdogan to be uh, able to sit at the table with China as, and act as mediator. However, and and I should also say that you know foreign policy in the Turkish context is very much about domestic politics, uh, and. Uh, h- uh, he Erdogan has been very good at, in a sense, projecting himself onto both the regional and the global stage and thereby winning over uh, votes at home from a populace that at the moment is quite nationalistic. All that being said, however, he's really struggling now because of the response to the earthquake, because of the issues over the construction, So, uh, and the, the, the election is coming up potentially in May, possibly in June, we still don't know. Uh, but So, there are a lot of issues on the domestic front that, that even even acting or projecting oneself and engaging in that way in the foreign policy domain, I don't think would win him votes right now. In fact, that might come as a, as a slap in the face because people are expecting him to sort of clean up the mess at home if he has any chance of winning the next election. So, I think timing-wise, uh, n- in the next few months, we won't see that. Maybe after the election, of course, depending on what happens in the election.
0: I want to make sure that we also uh, have a chance to uh, to engage the uh, the audience uh, in uh, in posting questions to the the panel. Um, I would just like, before we we open the floor, to remind you that we are um, recording this session and we'll be posting it afterwards. Uh, I do uh, encourage you to direct the question, if possible, to. Uh, to um, specific panelists and also please state your name and uh, and your institutional affiliation if applicable. The floor is open.
5: Thank you very much. My name is Ingeborg Breenes, International Peace Bureau. I'm wondering if uh, PRIO is doing anything to look at the effects, ecological effects of the Ukraine war and the militarization it entails, not only on, uh, on the food security, but on uh, ecology in a wider sense. Second <coughs> question is more political, and that is, is there an a Biden effect? You said that uh, Ukraine could be happy that Biden is uh, president of the United States right now. Is... It's possible that Biden is particularly engaged because of the 2015-plus involvement of the Biden family and Victoria Newland. Thank you.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, there's in, in terms of the ecological effects, there's obviously profound eco- ecological effects within Ukraine itself. Um, uh, I mean we, we touched on that very briefly when talking about food security and sort of agricultural production, but we you know, you know, we, we haven 't um, worked on the sort of ecological devastation wrought by the war um, but a wider question uh, which Pavel and I wrote about was the effects of uh, the, the indirect effects of the war on um, efforts to decarbonize uh, the energy sector in the world uh, to to address climate change. Um, and there it's, it's been extremely negative. Um, uh, we've seen, uh, obviously, uh, Western Europe try to cut itself off from Russian en- energy supplies. Um, part of that has been positive in that there has been increased investment in solar energy, wind energy. Um, but uh, another effect is that uh, Western European countries have gone around the world buying up uh, energy supplies from elsewhere. Uh, Firstly, that's included European countries buying coal and burning more coal, uh, obviously that's uh, setting back progress on decarbonizing. Uh, And secondly, you've had, uh, because European countries have been buying up um, gas, uh, liquid, um, uh, liquefied liquefied natural gas uh, supplies. Other countries have then been switching to coal, particularly China, uh, again, because the gas supplies have been become too expensive. So we're, we're seeing a, a consequence of the war being rapidly increased uh, use of coal uh, and then increased investment in coal production uh, because the, you know, the price is going up, mines are opening around the world. Um, so yeah, the, the ecological effects are,
0: have been very negative. Pavel, the second question. Yes,
1: uh, I think it is very interesting phenomenon about the uh, um, person of President Biden who consistently uh, outperforms all expectations in, you know, in many respects, in the midterm elections and in advancing legislation through U.S. Uh, Congress and in visiting Kiev um, last week. And I don't think we need to go uh, in the depths of conspiracy theories of how exactly uh, his, what exactly his son was doing in Kiev. I don't think it is um, relevant. Whatever uh, um, efforts might be taken by by his opponents, uh, his, for that matter, his reputation in Poland, uh, where where he visited. Um, doesn't really involve any, uh, any specific connections, but it really really built on his stance, very strong stance against Russian aggression, a very strong ability to mobilize allies uh, around that. And I really don't see any, um, uh, any use of kind of t- trying to um, diminish this role uh, by uh, going deep into the uh, uh, particular particularities of uh, certain uh, uh, past stories. But whether, uh, whether it will help him to stand again in the elections is still a big question. Uh, there is still a, a point that uh, yes, uh, great performance in the first term, but maybe the second term will be a step too far.
0: Nick, and then, I yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, Just to say, uh, I mean, there's, there's a very obvious personal motivation for Biden, um, which is the uh, election uh, when Trump was elected, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's uh, uh, you had Russian uh, involvement uh, in that election um, assisting Trump, and, you know, th- this is payback uh, if you're looking at a personal um, motivation. Pinar?
3: Yeah. Also, the, um, if we look back to to the right before the first election, and some of the things that uh, Biden was talking about, he his focus was very much at that time an, an expressly moral American foreign policy. So he wanted to resurrect America's image in the world. This was really what he set out to do, and of course, then Afghanistan happened, and that sort of went down the wash. But I think there is still that in that that uh, sort of ideological, uh, if you like, framing in his head that that American foreign policy. Should be based more on values. Should be uh, s- more moral, if if we can use such an old-fashioned word. So I think that there is that frame there still, and uh, and in some ways maybe what's happening now is is kind of try- he's trying to balance some of the things that have happened in his uh, earlier in the term. Uh,
6: my name is Magnabat. I used to work many years ago at Prio, and uh, <coughs> I'm retired now. But I also worked for the International Committee of the Red Cross, and I had my last three years in in russia from 2016 to 19. so uh, i'm very interested in the discussion of course and i have a question for Pavel primarily and that is what do you think about the sustainability of the political system under this war and i i will just reason a little bit about the 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 question because uh, nick for example uh, reflected on the sustainability of the support for ukraine but we have to measure that against The sustainability of Russia to keep the war going. And I remember when I was based in Russia, I talked to a very experienced uh, Western diplomat who had been several times in Russia, and he said Putin may engage in a small military adventure, but not a big one, because the Russians don't want to eat potatoes again. Simply not sustainable. Now he's into something very, very big. You look at the, the crisis in Russia in generally deep demographic crisis. Uh, High tech crisis. Uh, the chief of um, central bank is warning against uh, very dire consequences in the future. we had a massive brain drain, and so on and so forth. And uh, the Western figures that maybe the Russians have had losses of up to one hundred eighty thousand people wounded and killed means an enormous drain on Russia. And Russia is a pygmy in in uh, in uh, international uh, economy. So. I mean, before the war, uh, the Russians seemed to think that uh, Putin could be the ruler for eternity. And he wanted to have that image of building on the thousand years of a Russian empire. But today, I mean, isn't really his prospects of ruling uh, very long, uh, drastically diminished? Because it's difficult to see that all political elites as such can see in their own interest continuous and long-term conflict with the west and something likely would happen to change the political game in russia which of course then would impact the war one way or the other so that's my question to you thank you very much.
0: thank you paul what can you say about the sustainability
1: of the russian regime it is difficult question and it is very painful question also because i've uh, I have felt great difficulties communicating with uh, colleagues and with friends and even with re- re- relatives in, uh, in Moscow on this matter. In many ways it pains for me to see that the country is uh, continuing to engage in this war and kind of, uh, there is no kind of enthusiasm, there, but it's much more resignation. There is no uh, kind of public uh, cheering for this war there is hardly any jingoism, but it is kind of grim uh, acceptance of that war, learned helplessness, what not. And I don't think on this uh, platform you can engage in a long war. Uh, I think the futility of this uh, effort inevitably uh, will affect the public opinion. There is no future in this war, uh, whatever kind of past images you try to uh, put forward it's it 's not really the way uh, the way forward. Generally, people need uh, some sort of hope for the future uh, for, for their n- uh, normal life and it is a hopelessness about this war, which I think will cut it sh- uh, g- cut it short. Uh, and West cannot plan for a regime change in uh, in Russia and Putin is doing everything possible to exterminate uh, any uh, sign of opposition. Uh, but I think the uh, spreading d- d- deep discontent with this war and the uh, elite understanding that uh, their interests are really uh, hurt more and more with the continuation will be an undoing of, kind of Putin's regime, um, not in the midterm, but much shorter than that.
7: Yes, thank you very much. Ivanova is Polish Ambassador. I have um, a question and comment at the same time. What do you think that the collective West, as sometimes we are called, uh, should do to think more in the long term and not repeat the same mistakes? Because what we saw during the Second World War, it was at the beginning, Okay, they will get Poland, they will get Czechoslovakia, and it will be enough for them. And we know how it ended, yes, in a way. We know how it ended when the solution after the Second World War was not a stable one because it was not agreed with all the countries involved, and they were left in the Soviet-like area. So looking now at Ukraine, what do you think that we can do to make sure that we don't repeat the same mistake? Because peace at all costs, is we know a short-term peace, that's one. And on the other hand, if Ukraine will not win, what will be the credibility of the collective West in the global South, when it sees that even they forgot about their friends and allies? Because it can be the perception at the end. If we do not do everything possible for Ukraine to win and regain, of course, the territory internationally agreed.
1: It is, a, it is a difficult question. And again, history provides so many different lessons about how to, uh, how to deal with this um, situation. But I think uh, whatever kind of thinking, we, what scenario we might uh, develop uh, about the future, it is in principle not useful to doubt Western solidarity with Ukraine and Western commitment to ensure that Ukraine wins. I think for for us as peace researchers, that position, uh, which sometimes involves kind of uh, bad feelings because you essentially argue for more war, uh, being a peace researcher. Nevertheless, that's kind of our mainstream position. We must do everything necessary to ensure Ukraine wins. It's clear what Ukraine victory is it is not clear at all what Russia's defeat is. There could be be so many different things there from disintegration and violent chaos to democratic transition on the other hand. Uh, But I generally tend to agree with one of the Polish uh, veterans of the resistance, Adam Michnik, who is saying democracy in Russia is entirely possible. Russia is not genetically hostile to democracy. This is an option most beneficial for for everybody in Europe. Cutting Russia out, perceiving it as an eternal enemy, is not a way forward.
4: Hi, I'm Zoe Gorman from Princeton
3: University. So Pavel had mentioned earlier in the discussion some of the efforts of the Putin administration to foster ties with authoritarian leaders. And Maria also very astutely
4: mentioned a pattern of coups in the Sahel region. So I'm wondering what are the, some of the effects of the war in Ukraine and also its responses on trends of democratic backsliding in the global south?
3: Well this is a difficult question to answer on my feet. (laughs) But uh I mean we well one thing we do see is that in the case of the Middle East, anyway, there is much less focus on some of the the backsliding that's happening. I mean we see this on the for example the Palestinian issue. The focus isn't there anymore. Uh so so in a way it's been it's being left to one side and we also see that you know th- this kind of appeal that putin has to a lot of authoritarian leaders and his very conservative uh views uh, and uh, and his his sort of uh, the kind of um, uh which you call clamp down that we see on the media the, c- the clamp down we see on on uh, opposition demonstrations i mean these are things that are also being repeated in in the global south so i think he h- there is an appeal for the glo- for, for leaders in the global south who also are authoritarians, this is kind of uh, a reason for why one would like to have this kind of relationship to a country uh, like Russia. Is because the y- you're not faced with the same kinds of uh, criticism that you would be faced uh, when, uh, for the kinds of regimes that you have. So there is that democratic backsliding, and I think that explains a little bit of the alignment as well with the Putin regime if sort of that touches a little bit on your question. But I think Maria wanted to say something as well. Yeah,
4: yeah no, I, I can speak more for the Sahel then, obviously. Um, as you know, there's been military <laughs> coups uh, in the last few years. Uh, and I think that uh, just as Pinal said, working with a state like Russia uh, or with Wagner Group, uh, they don't put political conditions on, the, on their support to the States, basically. Uh, I think what we've seen in Mali, what we've seen in Burkina Faso, is that partnerships with Russia doesn't necessarily enhance undemocratic tendencies, but what it does do is that it allows for it to continue when it has already been established. I think that's what we see in the Sahel, not necessarily that it increases the democratic backlash, but that it allows for it to continue in that way, in states where that system has already been uh, created through military coups, yeah.
7: Hi, my name's uh, Will Warley. I'm a journalist with an Outlook called DevX. Um, I was just wondering if you could perhaps um, give me your thoughts on, you you outlined some pretty profound changes on what was happening in the Sahel. maybe your thoughts on what the implications are there for the broader sort of West Africa region. And if you think that um, what's happened in the Sahel has really kind of sunk in on a sort of a policy and political level in European and and American capitals.
4: Yeah, big question. Um, I'm not sure what the implications are just yet. Uh, I think that, uh there's talk of the very like defined Sahel with Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, Chad, and maybe Mauritania. Uh, but what we see in terms of the insecurity developing is that it is spreading to coastal states, more West Africa, as you would name it. Um, I don't necessarily see uh, a large continuation of this geopolitical shift. Uh, towards uh Wagner group especially because of this question of uh, whether Wagner group has the resources to actually engage in in other states and I think Wagner group is quite a key tool for Russia to to kind of turn turn the geopolitics in 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 the states in in the Sahel and in in West Africa uh, I think that there is um just to go to the second part of your question, that kind of the Western acceptance or, or response to what's been happening, was that what you meant? Yeah. Um, I think that there has been an information war going on in the Sahel region for the past five years, and I don't think France understood that there was a war until a year ago, which means they kind of lost it before they even realized it was happening. Uh, and I think that is something that the French authorities are uh accepting now, they announced the last year to pull out all military troops from the Bakkan, uh, from the whole of Sahel, not just Mali and Burkina Faso, because there is such a... Um, the anti-French sentiments are getting so strong, and the post-colonial criticism towards France is also really uh, manifesting uh, in not just the uh, population and protests, but also the political elites. Uh, I think there is an acceptance of what is happening, and I think there needs to be some serious lessons learned, discussions going on uh, with around uh, European tables about what actually went wrong. Uh, how d- how did they not identify this information war actually going on earlier?
1: Do you want to say something to that, pile? Yes. Yeah. Just a few words. And I think in, in these particular questions and in the previous one, there is. A difference between the developments, broader trends developing, sort of say before the war, where we saw a democratic backsliding, which Biden tried to address, gathering the summit of democracies, and when the kind of the conflict in, um, in Mali was gearing up, now we have this one year of war, which makes a difference in all these trends. Some of this difference is that many autocrats are sort of say off the hook. Uh, Saudi Arabia is under less pressure, Venezuela is kind of feeling uh, much less um, isolated. But what's going to happen after the war, which might be quite soon, is a different story. And I think in this regard, Russia's defeat, Ukraine's win will be a big uh, shock for many autocrats it may change the the winds which have been blowing somewhere in their favor. It may impact very strongly on the developments in the the Sahel region. So in many ways, um, the um, localized hostilities around Bakhmut has a global uh, implications, has a global resonance, and it is possible to strengthen uh, the law-based world order uh, by ensuring that uh, the outcome of the war which Ukraine is struggling for.
7: Thank you so much, this is such an
4: interesting talk and I'm learning so much. Uh, my name is Miriam, I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Oslo, Faculty of Law, and I work mostly on, is this on? Mm-hmm. Refugee protection in and from the Middle East. Uh, my question might be slightly off topic, so I'm mindful of that. Um, but I was wondering whether Pinar and Marie could maybe uh, speculate a bit about what this would imply also for the EU's externalization and containment pl- programming within the region to sort of try and stop mobility from
3: those areas. It, it's a very good question. and It is a little bit off of what I have a great deal of competence on, but I can just tell you from uh, the, the Turkish perspective on, uh, on the deal that was made in 2016 between the EU and Turkey. Uh, w- uh, well, first of all, generally, uh, as we mentioned a little bit earlier, the, these I- the countries in the Middle East are recif- uh, receivers of, of, of the great deal of the, the world's refugees, and they're now seeing a, an entirely different attitude towards refugees coming from the Ukraine. And I think that also resonates very strongly in in the Middle East, which which you you probably know. Uh, The thing I think is interesting in terms of the deal that was made with Turkey for containing uh, refugees, Uh, from the Turkish perspective, uh, the money appeared, yes, but there were a lot of other, uh, uh, what you call promises that were made that were not fulfilled. Uh, and uh, as a result of that there's been a great deal of disappointment from the Turkish side in the EU and most, more recently there was another uh, extension uh, of, of the funding for this agreement where Turkey was given the money but wasn't even asked to be part of the discussions. So it was assumed that the containment policy that, that, that has been part of this deal would simply continue. And that kind of, um, from Turkey's perspective, disrespect uh, really does resonate, especially in an election year when one of the biggest issues in Turkey are the over three point, I mean, three point six million just Syrian refugees and over four million if you c- include everybody else. Uh, so, so this is in a country where nationalism ver- is very high, the economy is in a disaster, and now there's a humanitarian crisis. So, these things will all really affect uh, the, the the situation in Turkey at least. Okay. Yeah,
4: uh, I mean, European externalization programs have been very active in the Sahel for the past 10 years. Uh, You've had um, military missions or training missions, you have uh, had uh, border control uh, missions, police missions, and a lot of it is motivated by uh, the states in the Sahel's ability to control migration and control their borders. So this is uh, is one of the main efforts of the EU in the Sahel. I think it's fair to say that following Wagner Group's deployment in Mali, especially, and Mali has been the hub for a lot of EU missions. uh, I think it's fair to say that these programs, these EU programs have been um, they've been struggling because the EU has taken such a firm stand. uh, They've drawn the red line saying we do not train people who might operate with Wagner Group and Mali has said, uh, cool they'll still operate. So the EU has basically drawn a line and said w- we can't train people who might work with Wagner Group at some point, and therefore they've kind of limited their own ability to continue with these missions. Um, and as, as France is decreasing in popularity, so is the EU, because the EU is is, is very strongly influenced by French policies in the Sahel. Uh, so going forward, um, I think yes, those programs would be highly affected, uh, both in terms of um, the legality of being there if states do now turn their the focus, but also in, in in practice. I don't know the geographical uh, like area of operation they would actually have going forward, uh, especially Mali, Burkina Faso, maybe more in other states.
0: Yeah. Did you want to add to that, Nick?
2: Yeah, just briefly, um, th- there was lots of talk uh, about a year ago that soaring food and energy prices would lead to a sort of wave of migration into Europe. Um, a, a colleague of mine and I, we looked into this and we couldn't see any evidence that that, that was happening. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we can't say what will happen in the future, but certainly there, there hasn't been a sort of migration wave uh, that was feared.
8: Hello, uh, I'm Esther Sándorfi, the Ambassador of Hungary, and I would like to thank for all the panelists for this really very, very interesting and mind-awakening discussion. Uh, I would like to make a comment, and then, then to have a question. Uh, to comment to, to Nicholas, you just mentioned about Hungary opposing the EU policy, and I just would like to make a notion on that, that Hungary approved the 10 packages of sanctions And we are part of the European Peace Facility Project as well. We are also maintaining the largest ever humanitarian help vis-à-vis Ukraine. We have more than 1 million Ukrainian refugees who crossed the Hungarian border. Even if they don't stay all in Hungary, of course it means a lot of help needed from, from the state. I mean to help those people to find their way. Uh, and uh, and either settle or to or to choose another destination or helping them to go back to Ukraine when when the when the situation is 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 um, created for that. Uh, so I think there are a lot of discussion going on in the EU, but it's very important to know that we are together, as it was reflected also the op-ed of the European Union delegation, which was published last week on the twenty-fourth of February. Uh, in the Altinget paper, uh, my question: When it comes to arms delivery, one of the arguments against arms delivery is actually that it contributes to the further escalation of the war, and it's also the prolongation of the war, and that uh, causes a tremendous further loss of human lives. We actually don't know the exact figures, but I mean, you can you can uh, read about very different estimates. And when it comes to manpower, definitely Ukraine is in a much more vulnerable s- position than Russia. And we talked a lot about weapons and and production and and uh, and the speed of production. But and uh, who helps? Who, but but at the end of the day, I mean, you need the manpower. And uh, and we talk about people who are there on the front line. So uh, how how do you as a... Peace Institute Peace Research Institute do you deal with this subject i mean what can be the the further uh, outcome of this situation as long as the war prolongs thank
0: you that is a big question and we have about 1 minute left uh, so so i think with this is one of the discussions we will have to continue but uh, but uh, if any of the panelists would uh, would like to respond <laughs> to that and maybe this is a Question
2: for you, Nick, specifically? Um, yeah, uh, I, I can't answer all of that <laughs> in a minute. I, I can just say, yeah, uh, I- in terms of prolonging the war, yes, uh, o- of course, arms supplies to Ukraine would do that. Um, uh, but then you need to think, okay, what does prolonging the war mean? It means the Ukraine doesn't lose. Um, as f- for many of the weapons, ammunition in particular, Ukraine uh, has very little or no production. Um, so, uh prolonging the war, yes, but that, you know, a, a lot of people would see that as being better than, than the alternative. Um, yeah, uh, we, uh, we can talk maybe later on the other things.
1: Yes, I think in terms of manpower, it is a, a, an interesting question, because in many ways you have a situation where uh, big, two big European countries are fighting a high-intensity war with very small armies much smaller armies than they deployed in the First World War, not to mention the Second World War. So manpower problem uh, isn't really that uh, huge. Ukraine has numerical advantage in the number of troops it can deploy because Russia cannot mobilize enough. You know, that's, that's a plain fact on the battleground. Ukraine has more m- men and women under uh, armor and the m- more volunteers and more support than Russia can master despite the general size of the population. So it's not your total size which matter is very much the motivation.
0: And on that note, uh, please join me in giving the panel a big uh, round of applause. (laughs)